Welcome, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the It Matters to Me podcast, a show where we look at the intersection of nonprofits and the outdoors and highlight the people existing in that overlap. I'm your host, Adam Casey, and today we're going to do things a little differently than what you may be used to, and instead of just one guest, I've got four people lined up to talk about the issue of climate change. You see, last month I had the extreme pleasure of traveling up to Washington State to be a part of Aspire Adventure Running's first ever climate summit. This really was an incredible experience, partly because it was easily one of the most beautiful places I've ever had the chance to be in. And if you haven't heard of Aspire Adventure, they organize single and multi-day running adventures in wilderness terrain across Cascadia and Northern California. They provide logistical and emergency support paired with quite delicious meals and a community for a unique and memorable backcountry running experience. This year, though, they brought together a group of people from all sorts of professional backgrounds to highlight an issue we're all too familiar with but still have so much to learn about. And that, of course, is climate change. So how things are going to roll for this episode is that I'm going to do short intros before each interview instead of one lengthy rambling session like I've got going on right now. And to kick things off is Dr. Zoe Placaius, an agricultural and food systems economist. She currently teaches courses in environmental economics, resource economics, and introductory microeconomics. She received her BA in economics from Western in 2010 and her PhD from the University of California, Davis in agricultural and resource economics in 2016. She returned to Western in 2022 after six years on the faculty at the Ohio State University. Yes, the Ohio State University. And when not working, she enjoys hanging out with her husband and cat reading, hiking, and being out on the water in a sailboat or kayak. So let's get this started. Here's my talk with Dr. Zoe Plakaius. Well, Dr. Zoe, I Adam. feel like, sh- should I say Dr. Zoe? I feel like, sure, sure. Is it, or uh, I feel like I'm supposed to give like relationship advice now, though. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, I feel like with your multi dimensional approach to your work, you probably could. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but that being said, when I do these interviews, I'll know the person beforehand and I'm able to serve as more of a guide in the first few kind of sentences of the episode. But I would actually love to hear you introduce yourself because you are so multidimensional. And how would you describe the work that you do? That's a great question. I identify myself as an agricultural and food systems economist, but lately I've been feeling like that's not an appropriate term anymore. Sometimes I like to say that pretty soon I'm going to get my economist card rejected because I really have a hard time playing within the lines of any particular discipline. So I work in an economics department in the College of Business and Economics at Western Washington University. Um, which is a really wonderful place. So really, I think what motivates me is answering big and interesting questions. And that often takes me in a lot of different directions, which is why I was referring to the economist card being rejected, because the way that some economists and other scientists approach their work is they have a particular method that they use, and then they use that method in various ways over and over. And I'm like, I have this question that is interesting to me. 
and I'm going to go after it and try to answer it. And sometimes that requires using new methods, right? And, and so one of those problems is broadly kind of related to sustainability of our food system, health in our food system. That connects to so many other elements of sustainability more broadly. You know, it's, you pull a thread and then, you know, the whole thing unravels. So that takes me in a lot of different directions. Every research project I do, there's, you know, 10 more that, or more that come out of it. And then I love teaching because I love engaging other people in that work and helping kind of create sparks for people to pull other threads for themselves. One of the first ways I, I want to pull on a thread yeah. is ask <laughs> you about the intersection of climate change and economics. What is the actual intersection of climate change and economics? And especially in your work that you focus on, how does that intersection play out? Well, the intersection is really when you're talking about the various impacts that you just named, right? Whether it's extreme weather events or or sea level rise or or any of these other impacts. Ultimately, those things happen and then they have impacts on people, right? And they have impacts on on animals and ecosystems. And so economics is often if you haven't taken an economics class, right? You might think, "Oh, it's business. It's about money," right? But ultimately, economics is about decision-making, and it's about how people make choices, and it's about how people value various things. And not just things like stuff, but experiences or, or anything, right? And so we make choices, right? Every day we make a choice, right? We have 24 hours in a day. We have whatever is money is in our account. You know, we make choices about what to buy. We make choices about how to spend our time. And really, that's... When, when I say economics, that's what I'm thinking about. So climate economics is about when there are those impacts, right? When there are those various things that happen, how are they impacting people? And then what are the ways that that, you know, leads to costs? Like, are there additional activities that you have to do in your day to deal with climate change? Do you lose a house or a, and which is not just an asset, right? But a place that you value a home, right? And, and all of the things that go with that it so climate change and economics that intersection is about understanding how do we value the impacts and and there are some you know in some places there will be positive impacts in certain ways right some places might get warmer and you'll see you know in the pacific northwest you can go out and enjoy 70 degree days end on end you know every this summer whereas 10 15 years ago maybe you couldn't you know folks might see that as a as a benefit and so there's these benefits and these harms that come from each of these changes that's happening. And there's just vast amount of literature, scientific literature by economists that's kind of trying to understand both what has happened and what could happen in the future under a variety of potential scenarios. Staying on topic of economics, I'd love to hear more about the positive and negative impacts that you've seen in your research about climate change happening around the globe and how those things are playing out. And I think one thing you alluded to was the agricultural changes and mm -hmm. what you're seeing in some of your research about how climate change is impacting some places and seeing the, the effects that something is having on an industrial level yes. in different parts of our country. Yes. So first of all, I'll say that while my teaching has to do with climate change, my research doesn't, but I read a lot of research on climate change. And so I hope I can translate others, others' research on this space. 
the impacts are so varied, it's kind of hard to work, you know, to know where to, to start. But, you know, when we talk about agriculture, right, one thing that we we know is happening, right, is that there are these kind of differing frequency of extreme events and the events are becoming more extreme, right? And so this really matters for the life cycle of plants, right? If you have a deluge of water at a certain point in a plant's life cycle, that could just kill your entire crop. Or you have a freeze at a particular time in the plant's life cycle, your entire harvest can be gone. And and so when we see the increased you know, frequency of these types of events or increase increases in how extreme they are, colder or wetter or drier, right? Those are impacting it, you know, locally in certain areas can just damage the entire harvest. We're also seeing, you know, maybe you don't see a complete, you don't see your harvest completely gone, but you might see a change in yields, right? You have one variety that you've been growing that was grown or developed, you know, through many years of plant breeding to be optimal for your region, but it's no longer the right variety for your region because the conditions have changed in your region. So you have to find a new variety and that variety maybe would be better grown somewhere else. That's actually a really difficult kind of information process to go through if you've been used to buying the same kinds of seeds or you're saving seeds and you're growing them year after year, as many subsistence farmers do around the world. And so that that is an, another kind of piece of the process in terms of agriculture. In some places, we'll see increased yields of certain products. We'll see kind of my, what is interesting to me, this idea of plant migration, right? That we don't think of plants walking, you know, maybe north to south or something like that. But because the the optimal growing conditions, the location of those optimal growing conditions has changed, those plants will grow better in different places. And so essentially we'll have this kind of plant plant migration either helped by humans or through actually movement of animals. We know that birds drop seeds, you know, all of the all of the ways that seeds were passed before humans were planting things in the ground, that process, you know, will will unfold differently under under climate change. So those are some of the ways that that things will happen with with agriculture. Also, you know, when we think about the human aspect of agriculture, which is that, you know, in many industries, like let's look at, you know, in the in the West, we have a lot of specialty crop industries. So this is a lot of your fruit and vegetables. The some of those fruits and vegetables are mechanically planted or harvested, but some of involve people, farm workers who work in the fields to to plant, to prep the fields, to, you know, pick, you know, for example, strawberries is an example that's uh, where we have a lot of uh, farm workers. Chili peppers is an example, right? There's a variety of different of different crops. It's becoming just un- impossibly, and I, I truly mean that impossibly hot <laughs> to, in, in some of these cases, for people to to safely uh, pick those crops. And, and I'm, you know, that's kind of not even saying anything else about the working conditions in those situations, which in the absence of climate change are already very challenging when you add heat and you add, make it even more difficult to do that job. That's going to affect those people's lives. It's going to, it will have impacts on productivity. It will impact the prices of those goods. It will then impact the availability of those products for people who need them. And we know that fruits and vegetables are an important source of a healthy and nutritious diet, right? So all of that is impacted through climate change. For me, what kind of sticks out is the impact on violent crime. Yes. And how that 
is going to potentially play out in the next couple of decades because again it just shows that climate change is not just this one little save the whales kind of greenpeace mission this is an entire nation's economy this is how our societal structure is going to be impacted so i want to shift gears a little bit and you asked in your presentation about our adaptation and mitigation practices that we might be carrying out because of climate change but i would love to hear if you found if businesses are also adopting any forms of adaptation and mitigation towards climate change and what some of those examples might be. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about agriculture a minute ago. Of course, farms are businesses, right? And uh, we have all of the businesses in the food system that are are adapting. Some of this will will be through kind of price mechanism, right? So certain things, if certain things become more expensive, that requires businesses to pay, you know, say if an input becomes more expensive, right? If you're, if you're a company that buys fruits to then process them into something, or if you're a company that's buying some kind of product, that is going to, to climate change for a variety of reasons could raise the prices of, of those inputs. And so you would see it as higher costs. Now that might just be like, oh, the bill is higher. We just pay that. But at a certain point, if the cost gets so high, you have to make substantial shifts in your business, right? And so if the kinds of inputs we're talking about, you know, this could be like, say that we have a really hot spell and everybody's running their air conditioners. We have these situations where the power grid hasn't been able to handle the level of, of power that's being demanded in in heat situations, you could have factories that shut down, right? You have factories that can't operate. They don't have power. Maybe they don't have backup power. You'll have, you know, just a lot of supply chain disruptions that can disrupt a business itself or a business that it's connected to, right? Which then disrupts the whole chain. And we saw that a lot with COVID. I mean, what's interesting and a little scary is just, you know, how many issues we had with COVID. There was a lot of adaptation that happened, but there were a lot of supply chain issues. And, and those are really kind of a preview for the kinds of issues that we should expect to see with climate change. Now, it tends to be that so far that climate change impacts are localized, right? There'll be a hurricane here or there'll be a, a uh, flood there. And we have a very connected global kind of economic system. So when there's a localized event, someone can get something from somewhere else and we can kind of adapt um, in that in that short term. In terms of bigger adaptations, I mean, certainly there are some companies that are trying to, I think, be proactive, but many more, I think, will end up kind of being more reactive to some of the impacts of climate change as they as they come and, and as they as they need to. Yeah. The one that really jumps out to me is the insurance mm. industry. Oh yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially That's a great with yeah. I think Florida are no longer offering new policies or they're actually just completely abandoning the state. And I think in California, it might be no, they're no longer affording new policies. Yeah. In California, I think State Farm and Allstate both have now announced that they're not giving new homeowner insurance policies. And so basically what they've done is, and I appreciate you bring up insurance because I, I didn't think of that immediately, but it's it's absolutely where we're seeing some adaptation because essentially what happens is that, you know, we pay a premium for our insurance, right? And that premium, what it is, is we're paying into a big pool of money. And then from that money, when somebody has something happen, like a wildfire burns down your house, right? The insurance company pays out a larger payout to you. So we are all 
basically with our premiums, paying for the privilege of having that pool of money when we need it. Now, it basically has gotten to the point in these places with that there's so much risk, right, that the only way that, and, and you know, we could go into company profits and their business model and all of that. But that aside, I mean, they're basically saying the only way that we can do this is by making premiums so high that no one would pay them, right? So no one would buy an insurance policy. So we're just not going to offer policies anymore because the premiums would have to be so high to then have a big enough pool to provide all the payouts. So that's certainly a place that we're seeing a lot of adaptation. One thing you talked about in your presentation was the social cost of carbon. Yes. Could you explain what that is and why it is actually so important to the way we look at climate change? Yeah. So basically what it is, is it's a way to understand the cost of emitting an additional unit of carbon dioxide or carbon dioxide equivalent. So if we have other greenhouse gases. And um, so it's it's a single it's a single number, and it is we can think about it as the <clears throat> um, net present value. So what that means is in today's dollars, right? If we count, if we consider everything, the common unit is today's dollars of all the kind of future costs and benefits that come from emitting one more unit of carbon. If we add all those up, we convert them all to today's dollars. What's that number? And what that helps us do is that helps us to say, like, okay, if we could, if we emitted this unit right now, you know, if this project that we did, if this flight that we take or this factory that we build emits X number of units, what is the cost to society of doing that? Right. And so it's useful in that it can then help us to, you know, we can we can consider it in a wide variety of scenarios, any scenario where we have greenhouse gas emissions. And that's, I think, a pretty amazing tool to, to be able to have. Now, there's a lot baked into that in terms of assumptions, and there's some disagreement on exactly the level of the, the number, but there's a lot of agreement. I think that the, the number is, there's a cost, a net cost to emitting an additional unit of carbon. And, and I didn't talk about this earlier, but that's not only because each additional unit matters, but also, you know, the cumulative effect matters. So the more we put into the atmosphere it also as it accumulates that can kind of change the the trajectory of things and what stands out to you as the biggest social cost of carbon is there anything that you look at and that you point to as a great example of what a social cost of one ton of carbon might be so the proposed number or the current u.s number i think in policy is like 50 dollars per ton so a ton would come from like one passenger on a cross-country flight or in the U.S. or I think about 2,500 miles driving kind of an average car. These are estimates based on kind of averages. So that kind of gives you a sense of what level of activity it would take. So if you take one cross-country flight, then you can think about, okay, I have emitted one ton of carbon. Depending on what estimate we use, that could be $50 to $300 of social cost from that activity in terms of the social cost of carbon. For someone who is ingrained in climate change, for someone who is, has made their life's work understanding it and at the level that you do, is there any business in particular that you think is out there doing it right? And I ask that maybe in a, in 
a personal hope that we're all concerned about climate change and we all want to hear that things are getting better and they're actually doing things to put that into practice and on a good path towards some form of sustainability. I think it's hard to speak industry-wide. I wouldn't say that any industry as a whole is on that path. Um, and I think that the examples to me, for businesses in general, I mean, as an economist, I tend to think that businesses want to maximize profits. Now, that's not, that's, it's more more complicated than that, right? Not every business operates entirely with a profit maximization goal, but many do. And the larger they get, the more likely they are to, in part because they're answering, if they're publicly traded, they're answering to investors, right? So that, I think, if they're not required to pay these social costs of carbon, I think it's very difficult for them to justify that to investors. And so I have a very hard time taking a lot of businesses seriously in their commitments. I think that climate change mitigation is really something where the government has a role to play. And I see a lot of hope in government policy and regulation. That said, in, in terms of business, I mean, some of the businesses that come to mind for me, there are certainly examples. I would say there are examples in every industry of people who are trying to do things differently. And so we, you know, in the industries that we engage in, we look for our kind of glimmers of hope. You know, we're here doing this, you know, outdoor, you know, uh, recreation kind of activity here. And some of the companies in the space that I think are doing interesting work are Patagonia, REI. And, and the reason for that is especially in reuse of materials um, that I find really, um, really compelling because we're selling used gear. I mean, essentially, when you see a company that's actually willing to sell their used gear, you can think about they're competing with themselves, essentially. And and that to me shows a level of commitment that that is meaningful. So I think that those those kinds of actions reducing use or finding ways to really creatively use materials because every time you produce new materials, right? It's creating it's creating waste, it's creating um uh it's taking energy in that process, right? Um, those are the things that to me are, are pretty hopeful. Um, and in every industry, like I know folks who are developing biodegradable neutral plastics for agriculture, there are people doing really cool stuff on the food system, folks that are really trying to innovate and doing amazing things. And some folks that are just going along with the status quo and aren't going to change until they absolutely have to. <laughs> and last question, just yeah. following up on that is where do you sit personally? Are you hopeful? Are you filled with hope about the way things are going? Or is this conversation going just to give you nightmares? No, it won't give me nightmares. I mean, it's it's great to be right now with a group of people who who care. It kind of remind you know, it reminds you that these conversations are important and it's important to just keep having them with people. I'm, you know, I I'm just a human like everybody else. So I have the same, you know, there are days when I feel really discouraged. <laughs> and there are days when I feel really hopeful. And I mean, I think the fact that I teach college students means that I get to see, I get to work with people who are, you know, just really 
I mean, some are some are discouraged and distressed, but see, a, they're really idealistic, and I love that, and I love to help them harness that so they can do great work in this space. Like I teach resource economics, natural resource economics. I teach advanced topics in environmental economics, which is about climate change. And I teach about population, environment, and world agriculture. So we're going to find a way. <laughs> we're going to make it work because this is our, you know, this is the world that we're kind of, we're, we're moving into. And, and so I, I, I really dislike it when people are like, oh, the kids will figure it out. Cause that's, that's not okay with me. Like, I don't think the kids should figure it out, but I think that, you know, they're in it with us and whatever I can do to help them to, you know, do that work, I will do. I think we have to just, like anything, give ourselves grace. Like, it's not, it's not this all or nothing thing, you know, and, and we just have to keep, you know, keep trying and those conversations I think can be hopeful. I'm I'm a firm believer in those small incremental changes that those will accumulate to something for the better. Can I add something to that though? Please. I think it's really important that we not and I, I kinda wish I said this earlier in front of in front of the group here at the lodge, but it's really important that we not let those small things take away from our action toward the big things. It has to be a simultaneous kind of push because it can also be easy to say, like, oh, I took the bus. I don't need to do any of these other things. I don't need to show up you know, in my local community at the, you know, environmental committee meeting and talk about climate policy for the, for the community. I mean, I recognize we got lots of things going on in our lives. Not everyone can do all those things, but it's about, it's about all of it. Right. And so each of them can add up incrementally for like a lot of individuals, but also within our own lives, there's a lot of different ways that we can have an impact in a variety of ways. Well, Dr. Zoe, thank you so much for taking the time to come talk to me. And I'm very hopeful that you get to enjoy the mountains tomorrow because thank they you. are absolutely gorgeous. Yes. For anyone out there who's listening who wants to look more into some of the the work and the teaching that you've done yeah. and that you do, where do you send people to engage with you and your work? I have a website, so that's probably a good place to send people. And it links to all of my papers and as well as like syllabuses for my classes. So if you're interested in kind of the, in the material that I teach and what papers I assign, things like that, it's www.zoeplakias.com, Z-O-E-P-L-A-K-I-A-S.com. Great, which I will be sure to include a link to the show notes. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great night uh, tonight and that I hope you have a great morning tomorrow. Thank you so much, Adam. Coming up is Dr. Joe Boomgard Zagrodnik. He is the founder of the Convergent Zone blog and a postdoctoral researcher at Washington State University. His career has spanned a number of academic institutions and research interests, including weather observations, field experiments, forecasting, climatologies, machine learning, and high-resolution modeling. A Seattle resident since 2013, Joe has embraced the temperate climate for his outdoor hobbies, including running, gardening, and beekeeping. So let's get to it. Here's my interview with Dr. Joe Boomgard Zagrodnik. Welcome to the show. How's it going? Good morning, Adam. 
I'm a little sore from running yesterday, but ready to do another day. Yeah, you were getting after it yesterday. So this being day two, do you feel a little bit more settled into the swing of things? It always takes me a couple of days when I'm out of my element, but I feel a little bit more settled today. Yeah, I, I got to present here pretty much right when I showed up. So I was like thrown right into it, but I can just focus on running for the rest of the week and yeah. listening to everyone else. I would love to hear you introduce yourself and the work that you do and why that brings you here to this lodge. Absolutely. So I, I consider myself an atmospheric scientist and kind of a, a generalist, but I'm definitely more on the weather side than climate. Although I think increasingly those two sort of weather climate disciplines are blending into one just because the changes that we're seeing in climate affect weather so much. And I've worked, I've was at three different academic institutions doing research. Now I'm in the private sector. Each one I worked on something slightly different, but almost all of them involve some aspect of extreme weather. So I think I think I know a lot about extreme weather. I know a lot about the weather in the Pacific Northwest in particular, both from living here and getting my PhD at the University of Washington, working on a project that focused on extreme rainfall in the Olympic Peninsula. And now I work in insurance and work with hail and damaging hail and tornadoes, mostly in particular. So and I worked in hurricanes previously, too. So pretty much any type of extreme weather that the climate changes impacting I've kind of heard of. And what are you noticing in your research and then kind of what are you noticing as a trend now that you're in the private sector? There's so many different things going on. I think everyone is really aware of what's happening now. I think every time there's an extreme weather event, people are realizing that this is different than it used to be in some way. It's, it's very hard to quantify even for the scientists, but when you just look at the intensity and the frequency of some of these events and having experienced some of them firsthand during my research out on the Olympic Peninsula, I, I talked in my presentation about a couple of extreme rainfall events that just completely destroyed the trails that, that we were on. So it, it, it really hit there. I, I just couldn't believe how powerful these storms were just seeing it person. It's, I think it's, Extreme weather is, is often how people personally experience climate change. It's a little bit harder to see sort of the one or two degree increase on a day-to-day -day basis. But when you kind of reach the, those outside events and see the devastation, it really starts to, to sink in. What do you say to people who might claim that these extreme weather events have happened before, but this is still a result of climate change? I think the science is very clear that there is an increase both in extreme temperatures and in extreme precipitation, both droughts and floods. Out of all the different aspects of the climate system that the warming is having an impact on, those two are by far the easiest to understand from the science perspective. and. Yes, they've always happened, but it's it's very clear that they're becoming worse than they were before. Very, very clear. What kind of specific trends or patterns are you noticing up here in the Pacific Northwest? Because I feel like there's unfortunately so many extreme weather events that are happening up here. But what stands out to you as being the most prevalent? 
our heat wave in 20, June 2021 blew everyone away. It, I even for scientists, nobody expected that temperatures could get that warm in this region ever, much less in June, which isn't even the peak warm season. That was one of those game-changing extreme events that really changed people's perspectives on what could happen in this region and what might happen in the future. And it was a little scary because it was even above and beyond what climate models would have predicted. So it, it, it showed what an already extreme war event could become under climate change. And it was, it was really scary. That one and the extreme atmospheric rivers that we've had in winter, there's been where we're running around the Nooksack River this weekend, which was a river that caused a lot of damage from flooding two winters ago due to a series of atmospheric rivers that that impacted the region. And it's pretty clear that there's been an increase in winter precipitation around here. All the climate models show that. So it, it's it's pretty clear that there is some, some influence of of climate and also from the the rising snow levels in the mountains which makes winter winter storms produce higher stream flows and i think it's kind of crazy that wildfires are kind of the third one on my list how we manage forests has a part of it how we've built houses within forests that we know historically burn so so those three those three i think have been the big ones around here and since you're in the insurance industry, do you feel like the Pacific Northwest in particular, or at least the area that you focus on is better prepared for some of these events? Or do you think that we've been building homes up here in all the wrong areas and we're just, there's one cataclysmic event away from this being a major, major crisis? That's a good question. I, in my opinion, we have done very little to prepare. I think, I mean, we haven't seen, we haven't moved houses away from these vulnerable areas. It may, I mean, individual homeowners maybe have gotten a little bit smarter in terms of just clearing brush from around their houses for fires and stuff. But I, there's been, there has still been very few wild, in Washington state, there have been very few large fires on the west side of the Cascades. The Bolt Creek fire last year was, was one of them. Oregon, on the other hand, has had a massive amount of acreage burned on the west side of the Cascades in recent years. And I think, I don't think we, with wildfires, I don't think we've had a game-changing wildfire yet in Washington state. I think that we had our heat wave in 2021, and I think that that really helped. I think there's been adaptation, but there hasn't been a lot of mitigation. I and there we're still building highways. We're still expanding highways, for instance. We're not really accounting for carbon budgets in our decision making at the state level. So I, there's a long way to go there. There's been some. There's definitely been some movement, but I don't think there's been the level of movement that we need. One last question. We just spent a full day out on the trails. We're about to spend another full day out on the trails. When you're out there, are you able to at least enjoy the landscape or is your brain just constantly ticking when you see snow maybe in areas that it shouldn't be or you see like risk prone areas? Are you able to just still be in the moment and enjoy this or does this just weigh over you like a looming cloud at all times? 
You know, I, I recently hit the 10 year mark of living in this region and I've reflected a lot upon my first impressions of the forests around here when I moved and kind of how naive I was, I think in a way of just going into the woods and, and thinking, wow, these are the most amazing forests that I've ever seen. They, they feel so timeless. I think that these trees have just been here forever and it's kind of, you, you think, oh, it's always been this way. And then having started to see some of the changes for 10 years, having sort of educated myself on what humans have done to these fight like what i thought was a pristine forest was actually logged like several times you know you see like these abandoned mines and then you start to see i started to see invasive species right that i didn't know were invasive when i first moved here and now like like yes and and yesterday i went up to to a glacier that that honestly looked kind of pathetic <laughs> and I was like, oh, I, I know that this used to be a way more impressive glacier in the past. I could see a wildfire in the distance for the peak yesterday. I noticed all of those things and immediately put them in the context of, of what I've learned about the climate and our natural systems. But at the same time, I, I think I do, I do try and enjoy it. This really gets at sort of why we're here, I think. And you, you have to kind of reconcile those two things. It's not like it's going away, right? The the forests are still here. We can still appreciate them. And if anything, it motiv I, I think I'm going to come away motivated to do more personally to try and make a difference because just it's it's just as it's such a special part of the world and we, we can't lose it. Well, Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I hope you have a good and safe day out on the trails today. You too. Thank you, Adam. It's a pleasure. Next up, we've got Dr. Vic Visaya. Not only does he have a PhD, but Vic is also a trail and ultra runner alongside being an environmental studies and religious studies professor at California Lutheran University. He's also the founder of the nonprofit environmental organization Runners for Public Lands and a board member of Los Padres Forest Watch. Vic is also currently working on a book on public lands titled Ground Truth. The Natural World, Outdoor Recreation, and Environmental Activism. I so wish I had more time to talk to Vic. He's not only just got such a great personality, but I feel like he is definitely on the cusp of doing some really impactful things, both in environmental sciences and climate change, but also just bringing awareness to where we enjoy our sport of trail running and how important it is that we honor and respect the lands that we're on. So let's get to it. Here's my talk with Dr. Vic Thesaya. Vic, first off, before we even get into the interview, I need to put this on record. You just have one of the most engaging and just inviting, like not only personalities, but smiles in general. And I'm sure you get this all the time, but the way you smile, it's like a cup of coffee. It just brightens up everything. So I just want to say thank you first off for that. I don't even know where I want to go with that, that remark, but I just want to say it and put it out there. Thanks so very much. Vicky, if you could, would you mind introducing yourself and kind of the work that you do and how that brings you to this lodge? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I'm Vic Fazia. I am kind of born and raised in California. Um, my parents are from Malaysia 
and my mom's Chinese and my dad's East Indian. And so I'm half, half. And so I spent most of my life in California. And currently I live in Ventura, California with my wife, Liz. And I have two daughters, one named Eden and one named Athena. Eden's off at college and Athena's still at home in high school. And so, yep, we live in Ventura and we love it very much. For a day job, I am a college professor. And so I um, teach religious studies and environmental studies at California Lutheran University, which is in um, Thousand Oaks, California. It's a small liberal arts college. And I'm also the founder and I'm the co-president of the board of Runners for Public Lands. And so that's a nonprofit environmental organization that's based in Ventura and Santa Barbara County and is looking to go national and be a national organization that connects runners to environmental stewardship. And so that's the mission of the work is connecting runners with environmental stewardship. More specifically, it's, it's building inclusive running communities dedicated to protecting the environment. So that's kind of the official language. And so really kind of supporting, encouraging and facilitating runners to really kind of care for the people and places that they love. And so using running um, their sport as a way to connect to one another and also as a way to protect the environment. How would you define inclusivity? Yeah, it's a really great question. You know, inclusivity as a term has come under fire in the last few years in terms of criticisms about whether you're including people into something that's already sort of built out and already has own kind of ethos versus kind of this concept of belonging where we're really kind of co-building and co-creating things as we go with as broad and diverse of a community as possible. And so it's, you know, racial, socioeconomic, gender, age, abilities, et cetera, et cetera, are all different categories that typically are used to talk about inclusivity. And so really trying to be as diverse as possible, because in order to protect the environment effectively, we have to be as diverse as possible, because that is the way that we'll be aware of the changes that are happening, the impacts, and where we really need to prioritize our efforts. How do you work towards that mission? If I say that I just participated in a RPL event, what does that look like? We do all kinds of events. We do trivia nights where we educate people on public lands and regulations pertaining to public lands, the history of public lands, natural histories, cultural histories, indigenous histories. And so there are trivia nights, there are run meetups, there are campaigns that we do locally and regionally and now increasingly nationally to call runners to action. And so there's information and education that happens around national policies that relate to you know, climate change, the protection of public lands, and also outdoor recreation that we're increasingly building the capacity to help facilitate runner engagement. So on the one hand, it's digital. On the other hand, it's in person. We're largely active in the in Southern California, Central Coast, but we're starting to expand. And so we have now people active in Boulder, Denver. So in Colorado, and there's our sites are set on other sites in, in the country as well. So building out really sort of support for running groups to add a dimension of environmental stewardship to the life of their community. So we're not necessarily building new running groups. That, I mean, people are just great at that. Those evolve and emerge out of running shops, cross-country teams, um, run meetups, all kinds of things that are happening across the country. And so we're increasingly trying to support these groups in adding environmental stewardship to their life. And so educating people along those lines. What groups do you work with in Denver? Because 
I like to joke, I know what day of the week it is by what run club I go to. And I live in Denver, so I'm wondering right now if there's anything that some of the run clubs that I go to are doing with RPL. So we have an ambassador there now. His name's Alex Sessa, and he's based in Denver, Boulder. And he's in the process of building out an RPL chapter there. And so he works with a number of running clubs. And then he also is responsible for kind of starting a trail work series in Colorado where people from a number of different clubs can come out and do some trail work, get to know each other, understand trails as habitats, and then bring back to their clubs the opportunity to further engage with RPL in their area. Do you partner with any other organizations? Because I'm thinking, especially when we talk about inclusivity, a, a recent guest that I've had on is the founder of Rising Hearts organization, Jordan Marie Whetstone. And so all I'm thinking right now is I got to introduce you to Jordan if you don't already know her. Yeah, we're so lucky. We work so closely with her now. She's on our National Advisory Council. And so we work with Rising Hearts. And so we have a race director hub where we um, provide support for race directors that want to include environmental stewardship into the life of their, of their, of their race. And so um, Jordan's helped us quite a bit on making sure that that um, guide to um, running events like includes land acknowledgements and includes real relationship building with the native and indigenous communities of the places where the races are. And so, yeah, it's been great working with Jordan. We also work with the Running Industry Diversity Coalition, RIDC. And so they're an organization that got going, I think, around the pandemic, which is really trying to support diversity in the running industry. And so corporate levels, organizational levels and team levels. And so, you know, those have been two examples of, of groups that we've worked with to really make sure that as we seek to protect the environment, we're also seeking to build as inclusive of a community as possible that is doing the protecting. Have you experienced any pushback from some of this inclusivity? I, I feel like inclusivity immediately just might set off some people's defense mechanisms. Yeah. And have you received any pushback as you try to grow RPL? It's an ongoing negotiation and navigation. And so our board of directors is now geographically diverse. So it's spread across the country, whereas before it was really like based in Central Coast, Central California. And then our National Advisory Council is also a national body of professional athletes, coaches, podcasters, people that exercise leadership in the industry, um, running industry. And so with the help of, of, of people across the country, we um, are trying as much as possible to be a big tent organization and welcoming everybody to the conversation and the community. And so, yeah, inevitably you're going to run up um, with, um, with, with the people that, you know, disagree or have concerns. But I think we're still riding the wave of 2020. And I think the murder of George Floyd and, you know, the way in which at least the United States has really sought to re-examine itself and to engage some of these issues that at least they're not uncommon or foreign when people hear them and that we have some shared experiences as a country to kind of jump off of and have these kinds of conversations, which, you know, can be politically difficult, but it's part of the, part of the, part of the fun. You're using all the right language that I can never seem to find sometime when I want to ask about some of these things. It's tough. Yeah, it, it yeah. is. So we're talking in the morning. This is day two. You're going to be giving your presentation later today. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yeah. So if yep. you don't mind, could you give a little preview of what your presentation is going to be about? I'm happy to. The presentation is called Making Regeneration Irresistible. And so there was this African-American writer. Her name was Tony Cade. 
Bambura. And she talked about her job as an artist to make revolution irresistible. And so one of the things that's been really exciting is the work that Paul Hawken and others have done around the concept of regeneration. And you see this a lot with regenerative agriculture, but this, this, this broad concept that has to do with really getting out of the way and letting nature sort of like really live out its resilience that it naturally has. And we do so many things as human beings to sort of dampen that resilience. And we do a lot of things that don't work with the natural, natural cycles but instead sort of disrupt them and problematize them. And so I'm going to be talking a little bit about the joy of activism and bright spots across the country where we can experience hope and how that hope is kind of contagious and how even though the futures are uncertain, there are a lot of possibilities that are not foreclosed that we can really pursue. And so doing those in diverse communities and learning along the way is going to help us be as effective as possible. So I'm going to be talking a lot about climate activism and some of the possibilities that I see across the country. The regenerative agriculture is such a cool concept and the idea of people doing it in their backyards with keeping yeah. bees or raising chickens. I think that is just such a cool concept, like this idea that we'll have many farms in our backyards kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Well, Vic, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. My I don't pleasure. want to keep you from the trails. It looks like everyone's, we're all, we're all getting ready. How <laughs> yeah. far are you planning to go today? I don't know, 20 miles or so. Oh, just yeah. a nonchalant yeah, 20 miles, no. you know, after doing what, 20 yesterday? It's, it's going <laughs> to be great. I mean, the glaciers are have like a gravitational pull. Oh. When you see them, you want to be on them and touch them and experience them more closely. And so that kind of let that pull do the work. Yeah. I, I think, I, I think I mentioned it this yesterday, but if you weren't stopping to take at least a million photos along the way of what the route that we did yesterday, you're here for all the wrong reasons. This is unbelievable. And I'm saying that coming from Colorado, that these mountains and this terrain is just incredible. Yeah. It's unbelievable. My finger cramped up. I needed electrolytes for my finger from shooting so many pics. And so <laughs> well, well thank, thank you again i hope you have another uh blessed day on the trail we'll talk to you soon yeah thanks nice talking with you adam and last but certainly not least is the man of the hour person who founded and leads aspire adventure running Abram Dickerson. Abram has been planning and executing wilderness adventures for over two decades. Running, climbing, and skiing are expressions of his desire to live a life defined by passion and challenge. He has over 15 years of guiding experience, a love of great food, and a deep respect for the mountains. As a husband, a father, educator, and urban homesteader, he lives his life with intention and simplicity. He loves trails and the friendships that result from the suffering and satisfaction of running on them and is just such a great guy to talk to and I think really represents what Aspire Adventure Running is as an organization and the groups of people that he brings together. So let's get to it. Here's my talk with Abram Dickerson. Good morning. How are you morning. doing this morning? Good. I mean, I woke up here at the Mountaineers Lodge. My alarm went off at 545 up in, the, in this beautiful place. And the mountain went from deep shadow to golden glow to sunshine. It's a good day. Well, 
I'd love to kind of kick things off and have you maybe introduce yourself a little bit more and kind of explain what your role is here and what we're all doing here in this lodge. So my name is Abram Dickerson and I'm the owner principal at Aspire Adventure Running. We're the host of the Climate Summit in partnership with Runners for Public Land. And yeah, so I, I have a fairly deep connection to this lodge and to these trails. I live in Bellingham, so this feels like my backyard. I ski here in the winter and run here in the summer and hike here with my family. And it's part of my, my annual fall pilgrimage to come up and be on these trails and cook food and, and be here. Will you be my life coach? Uh, <laughs> this is an absolutely amazing place. Could you tell the listener what Aspire Adventure Running is and what does Aspire offer to people overall? Sure. Yeah. So Aspire Adventure Running, our mission is to build a community of runners connected to wild spaces. And so the, the wild spaces are wilderness and backcountry spaces that have been set apart. They're generally places where there's not competitive races or events. We operate largely in North America, the western, western half of North America, where there's beautiful trails and national parks and wilderness areas where you can't hold competitive events. Generally speaking, if we think about our mission as like these places are amazing and inspiring and running through them and being in them and the challenge of being them is just, just a source of deep connection for individuals connecting to the landscape. Doing that with other runners creates a community. And we do some fast packing courses where we're helping support runners develop a skill set so they can have that connection independent of us. Um, one of our goals is, is increasing representation. So we partner with different organizations so that women of color or the queer community have a place here. So we do affinity trips where we're really trying to do say, well, what are the representation barriers? It all kind of comes back down to building that community of runners and then looking at the lens of what's keeping people from that experience. And how do you recruit people in those underserved communities and encourage them to be on the trails and even recognize that they're a group that's not on the trails? We do that in partnerships with the two organizations we've worked the closely with are Out Trails with Ryan Montgomery and then the Trail Mixed Collective, which is an organization that really focuses on women of color in the outdoors. And so we design trips with those organizations and then kind of co-market and co-brand for the outreach. And then for Aspire's side, as I, as I think about who my staff are, making sure that I'm, I'm trying to welcome staff members of all sizes, shapes, backgrounds, and abilities to so that representation, we lead with that in our staffing pool. Well, I must say the staff that you've chosen have been part of what has made this trip so incredible, both Trent and Brian are just like some of the best dudes around. <laughs> They're so fun just to sit around and talk to. I'll fully admit this is the first running style event of this kind that I've ever done. And so I didn't really know what to expect coming sure. into it. And I think anytime you get into a situation where you don't know what to expect, there's a little bit of anxiety that couples with it. But as soon as I walked in, the vibe that everyone was giving off, Trent was on the grill I think Brian was in the kitchen and just meeting you, just the energy coming from you guys just really set me at ease from the moment that I've been here. But I just want to commend you on the staff that you choose and say that they're doing an awesome job. When it comes to 
the average size of a trip though. Right now we're maybe a little bit smaller than what you're used to, or is this the, the general size of each trip that you put together? Yeah, there's a lot of pieces that go into that kind of question of capacity. In some levels, it's the carrying capacity of the landscape that we're running on defined by the wilderness area group sizes, which is different in Washington and California and Idaho. So there's certain markers there that, that inform that decision, the kind of lodging that we have access to. We can kind of tap our group camps out to about 24 people. That seems to be about kind of the max that really kind of feels right in a camping-based situation. But then we have some other trips like this one in, the, in lodges where we'll, we'll bump up to like 30 or 40 people, which we bring in some more staff and bring in a few more vehicles for shuttles. Wow. I, the idea of 30, 40 people sounds awesome, but it also sounds quite chaotic. It gets, it gets more interesting, you know. <laughs> you have to be really, really clear about how things are moving and when. But a lot of our trips in the summertime that are, say, like our Wonderland, our Yosemite, Lost Coast, um, Goat Rocks. Like there's, there's a whole bunch of other trips that we do where... 12 to 15 is, is kind of right about the kind of the full group size with staff and runners. And that's a nice size. Yeah. I love this shift gears a little bit. So the focus of this trip is it's the climate summit. And is this the first climate summit trail event that you've put on or is this? Yes. It is. Okay. Yeah, so this is. is the ground zero, the ground zero <laughs> of it all. But why a climate summit? And maybe that's an obvious question, but I'd love to hear your honest answer about why I felt the need to put this on. Yeah, yeah, that's a really valuable question. If we kind of look at it through the lens of of kind of our mission of connecting, building community runners connected to wild spaces, as runners and trail runners specifically who spend time in the outdoors on trails in relationship to kind of population in general. And, and I'm not a scientist, right? So I'm not, I don't have like data to necessarily back up all these claims, but from where I sit, our community of runners who spend a lot of time outdoors on trails have this front row seat to kind of some of the, the effects of climate change or just have a front row seat just to seasons, to weather, to the nuance of what's happening outside. And for those of us that have been fortunate enough to kind of be involved in, a, in an outdoor running practice, there's wisdom that comes into our bodies over time. When we, we go out on our runs, we return to these places, we're able to recognize these shifts. And so there's there's an awareness that comes to these shifts that are happening in our, in our climate. And in, in that sense, I think our community is, is on the forefront to that physical witness. We have a lot of great work happening in the scientific community and the advocacy community. We have this lived experience of these shifts and these changes. And so the climate summit the goal was to take kind of that embodied experience situated in the North Cascades um, in proximity to some beautiful glaciers and then bring in experts, scientists, um, economists, other individuals who have another level of information, which is that science and that research and, and have spent more time contextualizing these changes 
and be able to speak to here's what the data is showing us and then to pair the lived experience alongside the data and then as a community kind of ask ourselves okay what is my role and then what is our role as a community of runners as we think about what what actions what stances what positions do we as a community want to hold in relationship to a changing climate and climate policy and climate action and for you what role can we have as we engage with the trails if we are, are individuals who are privileged enough to have the time and the resources to dedicate one, five, 10, 20 hours a week, wherever you are in that kind of spectrum of, of how much time you spend running a week, that's a place of privilege. If we have the disposable income and resources and time to, to spend that much time on trails and running, then that's a piece. I think there's an opportunity to pair our passion with information and contextualizing that information in relationship to the climate. So narrowing this down would be like getting educated about what's actually going on in our world as we're experiencing it, spending the time to understand the science and the, and how it's affecting us and affecting us in specific places. And then I think there's the, then the question of, well, let's forecast a little bit. So there is human caused temperature increases happening. And that trend is looking to increase into the future. And so where we actually end up in 20 years and 50 years and a hundred years, we know it's going to getting warmer and it's amazing to see the clarity with which those probabilities are being represented to us. So. When you pair the time with the information and then the realities as they are now and as they're being forecasted, then that kind of creates this base of, okay, well, what, what do I do now? And <laughs> when you think about those predictions long-term, are you forecasting that far out as far as a business model goes for Aspire and maybe already adjusting what Aspire's business model actually is? Yeah, that's a good question. And I mean, I, I would say to answer that is like, that is part of why I'm here in creating the space. And so by creating the space to have these conversations, I'm beginning to ask myself those questions. And that to me, feels like a first step. And I, I would be really curious to calculate, well, dang, how much carbon went into the air as a result of us just coming here? So it's really humbling. I think part of the education comes with being humble and calculating the cost and then holding that up as a mirror and a reflection of, oh, hey, we wanted to create the space for dialogue and action, but in reality, our collective action can be measured in the CO2 outputs. Dang, well, at, at least we better come up with a strategy to at least offset what we did, right? So at the end of the day, I believe fundamentally in a hopeful orientation towards humanity and our capacity to use our intelligence for, for solving problems and not creating those problems. Are we going to solve climate change at the climate summit here in the North Cascades? No. But what I'm hoping we can do is 
start to take some very clear steps and positions as a trail running community, which I think is a community of privilege, and say, hey, how can we as a community organize or come to agreement or advocate with our purchases and our dollars? Like, okay, which brands that we're buying our shoes from are making climate pledges and climate activities? And what organizations can I be a part of, like Runners for Public Land, who are really trying to organize our running community around these positions of sustainability, accessibility. Um, These are opportunities where as a community of runners, we can organize and collectively have a stronger voice and, and hopefully a stronger impact. We have to live our lives. And that's where I find myself when it comes to any topic about climate change, understanding, yes, this is the ideal position I wish I was in, where I was homesteading where I was growing my own food in my backyard, where I was producing all my own energy. But now the reality is the small improvements I can still make in my day to day are the things that still matter. And those, I think, do add up over time. And those 1% changes accumulate and lead to that big, massive change that we're all talking about that we need. Well, I know you've got your your beautiful family waiting for you. I don't want to keep you from them, but I would love to end this conversation on a more uplifting note. And I think you already started to speak to it a little bit more, but coming out of something like this, do you feel hopeful about the future of things? And especially in light of some of the presentations that, we heard, that we've heard. Oh yeah, I fundamentally have a lot of hope in in the capacity of humans to do collective action that is incredible, whether that's as communities, living into our potential, whether that's protecting our environment, creating inclusive communities, reducing inequity. There is this draw within us for for a more community-oriented, shared world, healthy world, healthy values. And that, that drives us. In terms of climate change, what kind of world are we gonna have as humans? right? Because the world that we have now is going to shift and that's inevitable. Like what our world is in in 50 years, 100 years, 500 years from now is going to look different. And we we are part of an evolving continuum of change. It's like we're really making decisions today about, well, the earth is going to change, but let's let's make those changes that are going to move us in a positive direction and lean more into the hopeful potentialities of that change. I believe in our capacity to take that information, take the technology that we have access to and say, hey, what if we did it this way instead? (laughs) And if we get enough of us working together to say, hey, there is another way and and this other way has a a better outcome if if more of us do it. And that's that's my hope. That's the positive note I'd like to end on. (laughs) I just want to say thank you for for giving me your time to talk and just thank you for helping organize something like this because without this, I probably would have never been up here in this kind of environment meeting some really, really incredible people that I hopefully stay in touch with. That's the community element, man. We're we're building a community. You know, if there's, if there's one success story you should have out of this, you should know that you've, you've built the community with me and some of these people that I've met here. And I think everyone would say the same. So I hope you enjoy the trails today. I hope you enjoy the rest of the trip. But again, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Adam.
Okay, that's going to do it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in to the It Matters to Me podcast and a roundup of my recent trip to Washington State with Aspire Adventure Running to be a part of their first ever Climate Summit. If trail running is your thing and you'd like to learn more about what Aspire does, I really encourage you to consider signing up for one of their many backcountry experiences. It honestly is a whole new way to experience the outdoors and will definitely leave you wanting more. And if you have a minute and you enjoyed this episode and the podcast overall so far, please consider leaving a review and sharing it with a friend. It really helps other people discover the show. And like always, you can get in touch with me on Instagram, where I'm at Adam Casey, or simply by writing an email to adam at itmatterstomepodcast.com. Can't wait to talk again soon. Till then, this is Adam Casey, signing off.